God draws us out to draw us in. What we've been seeing as we've looked at the book of Exodus is that God has been saving his people. He's been saving them from slavery, from the Egyptians. And what we see now in the book of Exodus as we move into chapters 19 and following is that God is not just saving people from something, he's also saving them for something as well. Israel is out of slavery as we begin at Mount Sinai. In the closing of the Red Sea, Israel's enemies were defeated and freedom was secured. But now God's people head southeast for around seven weeks until they reach Sinai. And as they reach Sinai, the story begins to change and we start to see what God is doing for his people. The book of Exodus doesn't end with the drama of the Red Sea. A lot of the Hollywood portrayals tend to end there. But the book of Exodus doesn't. And what the writer wants to show us is what God is doing beyond it. Indeed, in the rest of the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, and in the, really the start of the book of Numbers, we're seeing what God is saving his people for. Israel's going to remain at Sinai for some time, and this journey at the mountain at Sinai will shape the rest of the Bible, and indeed, what happens at Sinai not just shapes Israel, but indeed shapes us as Christian people. For example, I want to ask a question. What is the connection between our behaviour, what we do, and God's saving act? Does God require obedience to save us? Maybe he saves us whether we obey him or not. Some people think that. Well, if he saves us whether we obey him or not, why would we bother obeying him at all? The way in which that question is often answered is in two extremes. One extreme is that of legalism. God won't accept you until you have done a sufficient amount of good works. This is the good choice model. Just make good choices and do the right thing and hopefully if you do the right thing and make enough good choices, you'll be okay. That's one extreme known as legalism. On the other extreme, um, sometimes known as antinomialism, um, that is, um, nomos is the word for law, so against the law, uh, that extreme would say that there's no moral obligations at all. God likes you to, good, to do good things, but it makes no difference if you do them or if you don't. Perhaps in our secular world, they might lean towards that extreme. And the religious might lean towards more that of legalism, but the Bible does neither. It's not legalism, and it's not uh, antinomalism. Why don't you open up to Exodus chapter 19, and we're, we're going to see what occurs for God's people. And as you open up to Exodus 19, it's really important that we get the sequence right here. Because having reached 
the mountain in the desert of Sinai, there in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 19, Moses goes up the mountain and God tells the people this, there in verse 4 of Exodus 19. You, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now this is crucial. Before God tells his people what they must do, God reminds these rescued people that they are in fact rescued, that they were once hopeless in slavery and they have not rescued themselves, but God has done it for them. What I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, God is speaking about this reality that they have just lived and that they have experienced. And this, in verse 4, is not an obligation. It's a statement of fact. And there's this beautiful, wonderful image of Israel being carried, being carried like an eagle. I don't know if you've um, seen those wedge-tailed eagles. They're absolutely massive birds. They can, um, they can pick up small kangaroos which tower eagles. They can pick them up, even lambs. Well, this is the image here. The image here is of a soaring eagle, and as this eagle soars, Israel has come and been, been picked up and has been taken, taken by God from slavery here to Mount Sinai. So verse 4, God is very clear to remind them of this reality that's before them. And then you'll notice there in verse 5 how he begins to explain the obedience that's required. Verse 5, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. And then even in verses 5 and 6 it swings again. Then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. See what God is speaking of here. He's reminding these people that they have been set free. But they've been set free in many ways. It focuses on the big picture, but one of the things it does is focus on just a couple of lives and of one small boat involved in that rescue of the hundreds, thousands of boats that were involved in taking uh, two or three hundred thousand troops from France to England. The movie focuses on one small vessel, a 42-foot boat called the Mary Jane. And as the Mary Jane comes in close to the shore where the large ships can't get in, to take those troops and to take them back to the land. In that movie, the captain of that boat asks him, He rescues them because they, they needed it in an instant. No matter who they were, they are rescued. And this is what God does for us. He rescues us. He rescues us because we can't rescue ourselves. The Heidelberg Catechism is a very blunt 
German document from the Reformation. It's basically a, a question and answer training manual. Because it's German, it is quite blunt, and it, and it takes these series of questions. And question four asks this question to Christian people. It says, what does God's law require of us? And the answer is this. Christ teaches us this in summary. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Quoting from our second reading, Matthew chapter 22. On all these two commandments hang the law and prophets. That's the question. Question four. And question five follows question four up. You've got to love the Lord your God. This is what you're supposed to do. I saw him and ran to him. Friends, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, we have this beautiful and wonderful reality, reality that God has come to us. And he's called us to himself. And he's rescued us. He's redeemed us. And from that place of redemption, he now calls us to live the way he wants us to. But the way we are to live is from the heart of gratitude. It's not from the heart of possibility. If only I just am obedient enough, then perhaps God will save me. But the death of the Lord Jesus means that we are saved. God has demonstrated his love. He showered us in his blessing when we didn't deserve it, when we were still a long way off, when we were still sinners. And he wants us to live in accordance with his will. But he wants us to live in accordance with his will with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving for the salvation that he has given us. Because that's not where the Sinai story stops. It's not that he merely rescues his people and tells them to obey them and leaves them there. No, his purpose in rescuing them is relationship. Rescue in the book of Exodus is not for its own sake and the rules that are given in the Ten Commandments are not for their own sake. What we're going to see here in this next section is that the rescue and the rules are intended to bring Israel into a close relationship with God and the same is true for you and for me. This is where Sinai is going. If you open up there to Exodus chapter 24, if you want to turn a couple of pages, Exodus 24, I'm going to read um, around seven verses, Exodus chapter 24 verse 3. This is where Sinai is going. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar to the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, 
We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the Lord, sorry, and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, or sapphire, probably, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God, and they ate and drank. This is one of these moments in the Exodus story that is so beautiful and so serious and often escapes us. There is this pavement of sapphire, we're told here, and these men are able to go and to, to look, to look at God, and God doesn't lay a hand on them to strike them down. They're allowed to stay there and behold the God of Israel as they eat and drink. Just imagine it. What on earth did they see that day? As they encountered God there in Exodus chapter 24, God's purpose for Israel was not merely to be rescued and was not merely to have these rules for their own sake, but the purpose of their rescue and the purpose of the Ten Commandments was for the sake of drawing these people closer to relationship with God. God draws them out. He rescues them out in order to draw them in. He wanted Israel to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to look upon that sapphire pavement and just in that moment to marvel that this is their God, that this is our God. Here is the purpose of what God is doing in the whole book of Exodus. He wants his people to be captured with just how gracious, with just how kind, with just how powerful, with just how splendid he is. And out of that place, he wants them to obey him. So when Moses had the book read and the blood of the covenant poured out and sprinkled upon the people, he invited those 70 people to come up on the mountain and literally, you know, join him for lunch. Rules, sorry, rescue, then rules for relationship. And even the tablets, the tablets that are given to Moses are not the goal. The goal is Exodus chapter 24. The goal is the table, not the tablets. And yet there is something incomplete about this situation. Why? Well, because the book had been read and the blood of the covenant had been poured out, a meal had been provided for, or for only 70 who are allowed to eat it. And the rest of Israel are down at the foot of the mountains 
too scared to go anywhere near it. And so as Exodus chapter 24 ends, there's this sense of incompletion that things aren't quite right. And really this sense of incompletion hovers over the rest of the book of Exodus and indeed the whole Old Testament. Because what it helps us appreciate is that one day there will be a time when God will come once again, where he will provide a meal for those who have been rescued. And the blood of the covenant will be poured out not just for 70 elders, but for you, for me, and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it will start, this meal will start with 12 sitting around that table. And that 12 will behold that as they are eating and as they are drinking, they are seeing God. And there's no sapphire pavement there as they behold God. They see only a man condemned to death. Then they will see this man. They will see this man as he is executed. And imagine in that moment what those disciples, those 12 disciples, came to realise as they're having that meal. That this moment that was the climax of Israel's relationship with God in Exodus 24 is happening to them again. But God is here, not on sapphire, but in flesh. Imagine that moment for John or Bartholomew or whoever. The blood of Jesus has even more power than the blood of bulls and goats. And so when Jesus dies, it's not 70 elders, 70 special people that are invited up. It's not just the 12 who had that first meal of the Lord's Supper with Jesus. It's not just the 120 who on Pentecost have the Spirit come upon them. We see the book of Acts, it's 3,000, then 5,000, and we see as the book of Acts ends, the Gospel goes out, and all are called to this meal, to this relationship with God. This is the God who makes himself known, and this is the goal of our salvation. The goal of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is not merely us getting out of the trouble of our sin, as important as that is, the goal is fellowship with God, drawn close in relationship with him, that we would be, for him, a treasured possession. The Lord Jesus takes us on eagle's wings, not just out of trouble. He brings us to the feet of the Lord Jesus, and we are purified such that we can worship the Lord our God in holiness and in truth. And so, friends, we, we this morning are reminded of what God has done for us in the Gospel, and we are to hear this call, this call to come close to him because of what Jesus has done, and this call to obey him, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude and thanksgiving for what he has done. And, friends, we'll have an opportunity next week as we have the Lord's Supper, to reflect on the wonder and the beauty that it is to be called to his table 
and to feed on him with thanksgiving in our hearts. Amen. Please stand as we sing.